When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. We're taking a deep dive into ASEAN in the following podcast, talking with founders and investors from one of the world's fastest growing startup ecosystems. From Singapore to Ho Chi Minh City, Bangkok, Jakarta, and other parts of the region, hear how entrepreneurs are tackling this massive market, what investors are hunting for, and why startups are having such an impact across all dimensions in this part of the world. My name is Meher. I am part of the AWS startup team. I'm based in Jakarta, Indonesia, and we work with startups and startup enabling organizations globally and across Southeast Asia. So today we have uh, Munib from Baikia. Uh, Baikia is Pakistan's everyday, everything on demand super app that covers ride hailing, logistics, delivery, e-wallet and payments. And you guys are based in Karachi, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you have operations in Lahore, Islamabad, and Rawalpindi as well? That's correct, yes. So you have operations in four cities in Pakistan. Yeah, well, you know, Islamabad and Rawalpindi are basically twin cities, so it's basically one city. Okay, and you guys are also Series A funded with $5.7 million so far, which is the largest Series A that you've raised in Pakistan to date. And you are a founder, serial entrepreneur. You've led the previous fashion e-commerce company, Daraz, which was acquired by a large Chinese tech giant. And before that, also, you spent some time in investment banking. Correct me if I'm wrong with any of these. Yep, that's correct. Cool. So, I mean, out of curiosity, right, like a lot of us, I think, in Southeast Asia, we consider Pakistan as part of the region. But, you know, we have very limited insights into what the startup scene is like in Pakistan. So maybe you can start off by telling us a little bit of what it looks like to be an entrepreneur in Pakistan. How do you navigate, you know, the ecosystem, investors, who are the startup enablers in this country? Yeah, you know, um, so the startup ecosystem in Pakistan is fairly nascent, right? And I think part of it has to do with uh, where we are in, you know, both in terms of internet and smartphone penetration, but also literacy and also capital, you know, being deployed, right? So, so I think um, I know you're based out of Indonesia. I'll tell you that Indonesia and um, the part of Pakistan that I belong to has actually a very, very long history. In fact, uh, most of the traders who first went into Indonesia from the subcontinent were actually from the Sindh and Gujarat area, right? Uh, and that's why Indonesia gets its name, Indonesia. So so we've got a look, very long history. And frankly speaking, I also flew out to Jakarta uh, to learn what was happening in ride sharing on motorbikes in Jakarta before I started by Kia. So Indonesia and Vietnam have really been the inspiration uh, behind starting by Kia. So 
in terms of uh, coming back to your question, which is, you know, where is the startup ecosystem nascent? But the reality is that, you know, uh, I think uh, a lot of capital has already been deployed and a lot of like early stage companies uh, are kind of like uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of competition amongst investors to hustle to sort of like grab the rising unicorns in places like Indonesia and now also Vietnam. But if you look at the population of Pakistan, the reality is that, you know, after Indonesia, Pakistan is the most populous country in the world. It's the fifth most populous country in the world. And so, you know, capital will slowly start to find its way into countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nigeria. You know, these are the most populous countries like after Indonesia. And so I, I, I do believe that these are going to be, you know, finding startups in these geographies that could be rising stars is is the way forward for institutional investors uh, from around the world. So, yeah, so I think it's early, but I think early is good also because uh, you get uh, dibs into some of the best companies that are emerging in these geographies. Fair enough. Yeah, I see what you mean. You know, I was quite intrigued when I was reading up and it said that your inspiration to start by Kia was you noticed how smartphones and two-wheelers were the most expensive assets people owned in Pakistan. So you wanted to combine these two things as a way for people to be able to earn a livelihood. And again, it's like what you said about motorbikes having that opportunity be, to be profitable because the fare for trips are low. And, you know, you within a matter of a month, the earnings that you have, you can actually use to pay for that cost of the asset. So that's why I guess you focus on two wheelers. But given that, you know, it's a very it's still early days for the Pakistan startup ecosystem. You've been around for a couple of years with Baikia. What have you noticed the impact being in Pakistan? Is it amplified because it's still so nascent? So, so, so you know, I, I, we deliberately chose motorbikes. And the reason for that was that, one, there are a lot of motorbikes in Pakistan. There are about 17 million of them, right? Now, obviously not as many as Indonesia or Vietnam, but, you know, we are, again, fifth or sixth largest in terms of the motorbike population in the world as well, right? So lots of motorbikes, and they cost very little. Uh, they're almost all made in the country, and you can get a used one for $100, right? You can get a brand new one for $300. Uh, and of course, I'm not even talking about leasing them, right? So it's very, very easy to buy one. And let's assume basically the fare is about a dollar, which it is, you know, and you do, let's say, 10 trips or 10 bookings in a day or eight bookings in a day or five bookings in a day, like, it wouldn't be it wouldn't take you more than like a few weeks to cover the cost of the asset. And so 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 motorbikes make sense. Like if I were in the US, I would choose cars. Why? Because you transport people in cars, you transport pizzas in cars, and you know payments happen digitally. So cars would make sense. But in Pakistan or for that matter, any of these frontier geographies, right? Like you're talking about pizzas being delivered on motorbikes, but people also being, you know, transported on motorbikes. But Honestly, all e-commerce is also done on motorbikes because you've got to deliver stuff and you've got to collect cash because, you know, sure, everybody wants to go digital. But the reality is the next few years, you know, cash and delivery will prevail. And you've seen that in India as well, right? In Russia and Saudi Arabia, cash and delivery will prevail. And if cash and delivery prevails, it's being mostly done on motorbikes, right? So, so you're in payments already if you're doing cash and delivery. So we felt that 
motorbikes was the right sort of vehicle mode. And, you know, it's it's an asset that people do not, you know, when they're doing a job uh, on a motorbike, they're not baking in the cost of the asset. So, yeah, so, so I think, you know, motorbikes made sense. Uh, the changes that we brought about were, I think, monumental. So unlike Vietnam and unlike Indonesia, we had no pillion riding or motorbike taxi culture. Like there was none. Like we had uh, these three wheelers, sure, but we had no pillion riding or motorbike taxi on two wheelers. And so Bikea pretty much introduced this concept. And initially people would be like, yeah, listen, easy to appify users in Indonesia or Vietnam, but you've got to create a market in, in a country like Pakistan. But you know, Bikea did that, you know? And we did that because there was economic value for both parties, right? Now, you can come into a market and throw incentives to build a two-sided marketplace, which is what has really happened in the car category or in the food delivery category, right? You, you drive adoption through incentives. But if you are driving adoptions through utility, you know, that's a long-lasting business, right? And so what we believe is even though we have been hounded, you know, by, by very, very deep-pocketed competitors, they had no long-term strategy. And they continue to even today have no long-term strategy, right? Uh, and so we believe that we are local. We are building a product that is local. We're solving very, very localized needs. You know, our app uses a lot of voice notes, for example, and a catalog type sort of like journey as opposed to searching for stuff because we recognize that most people can't spell and type in their own language on a smartphone. So, you know, we don't believe that long term, you know, global competitors can come in and, and really take this market without massive, massive localization, which is hard for them to do. Yeah, so I hear that your app is completely in Urdu, right? And that, I guess, it's all in Urdu because of the language barrier that has been a challenge. Um, and also just, you know, your target audience. But do you see that being disadvantages in any way? Or has it only helped you? Do you intend to create an app in English at some point? So we did create an English version of the app, uh, the Android app, you know, two years out into building this business, you know, and, and so sure, the English speaking audience is a relatively more affluent audience with more disposable income and would use your app mostly for concierge services or deliveries, right? And so even today, English is about 40% of our uh, app users, but, you know, we also feel Urdu is defensible for us. And the reason I say it's defensible is that a competitor can't come in and just automatically translate uh, their product into Urdu. And the reason for that is that we've got a very particular font, which is hard to find. Two is that we most journeys in the app require no typing. So we're talking about a completely different product journey from a product journey that is built for a literate audience, right? And that has absolutely been our fortification against competitors. We've always been more expensive relative to competition, 
Like we've always like our fares are more expensive than competition, sometimes 25, 30%. But we've still always been the leader in the cities that we operate in. And that's mostly because of localization. You know, when with ride hailing startups, I usually hear about, you know, how their aim is to create efficient transport and logistics, especially in emerging economies, or also to increase that employment income generating opportunities. But from what I understand with Ikea, you guys have an emphasis on uh, economic prosperity. And I kind of want to know, what does that actually mean for you? Yeah, so I think the tragedy in many of these frontier geographies in Pakistan explicitly is that people have been using technology only for entertainment. Now, whether it's photographs or videos or chats uh, or songs, it's all just entertainment, right? And that's not going to take anybody anywhere, right? Like, sure, you'll be a great consumer for advertisers, right? Uh, And it's great for advertisers, sure. But how have you used technology for, you know, for prosperity? I think what's very important for me and for my colleagues uh, who are working very, very hard to try and crack a very difficult problem because, you know, we're not focusing on gamifications and, you know, trying to win customers through some level of content, right? We're trying to provide them a tool for productivity, right? And so everything that we're doing is trying to lure people to use our smartphone app for some utility. And that's very, very hard to do because most people, you know, get skewed towards content or incentives and not immediately towards utility. But, you know, our ambitions for our app are really around, you know, how do we make life easier for both parties, right? So one is a service provider and the other one is someone who's consuming the service. Now, how do we make life easier for them? How does one party save money? And how does the other party earn money? And how do we keep this balanced and sustainable long-term? That's so important. It has to be sustainable long-term. Like you can't keep throwing incentives to sort of mock up this house of cards, right? So, so it's very important for us to, to build something sustainable because you know, we want to be here. We want to be around for a long term, right? For the for the really long term, we want to we want to help change lives for people, and want them to use technology for for betterment and not just entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it's a interesting way to look at things. You know, of being rather than just a consumer, but also a creator, not just of content, but also again livelihood. Now, a lot of your competitors in Pakistan tend to burn through their money and, you know, they provide a lot of these subsidies and incentives, like you said earlier. And, you know, it's their way to gain that market share. But do you have like a more practical approach, which is why you charge that 20, 30 percent extra? I mean, how do you sustain the business amidst the competition? And what's your take on this, really? So again, you know, you're you're really pandering to two sides here, right? So on the customer side, competition will come in and essentially be cheaper or throw promos or discounts, right? And so they will 
you cannot compete against that, right? So, so they will always get a certain set of the market which is savvy enough to input all these things. And so from a customer perspective, we've always focused on, you know, really, I would say, dumbing down the product so that it's a lot easier to use our product versus a competitor's product. So the customer uses our product because of ease of use, even though they know it may be slightly cheaper to use a competitor's product, but it's a lot more cumbersome. Now, on the supply side, on the driver side, it's also very similar. So one, the product is very easy for all demographics, even those who can't comprehend English, to use the product. So you don't have to comprehend English to use our driver app, for example. The city, for example, is not, you know, you don't see GPS addresses in our driver app. You see zones because the common man doesn't understand a random GPS string, right? They don't understand like a, a postal address. Like what they understand is an area within a city. So it, we've just tried to simplify the tech product to drive adoption. Uh, now, in terms of incentives, we've also been very, very fixated that what are incentives really for for the supply side? They're really there for filling the gap in idle time, right? So any amount of time that the driver is not engaged. And so what we have been trying to do is really look at China and look at Southeast Asia and look at different sort of uh, use cases to give more jobs to the supply, right? And so if you are able to drive up utilization, you don't have to throw a lot in terms of bonuses to fill the gap. And another very, very important difference between us and competitors is the competitors went in and basically threw out such massive bonuses and subsidies that they lured people to quit their jobs to come drive on their platform. And that's the complete opposite of our strategy. We, from the onset, always advertised that, listen, keep your job, but earn supplemental income. So our fleet is 75% complete part-timers who clock in less than three hours in a day. So it's a completely different strategy. We're luring in a completely different set of supply. And frankly, you know, what we've noticed is through time, we've been right. Right. Because the minute you pull the subsidies, the minute you pull the, 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 the bonuses from a full time fleet, they vanish. Right. So what use has that driver or user acquisition been if the cohort isn't going to stick? Yeah. I mean, again, it's two sides of the story. But when you have price sensitive customers as well, then what's the strategy there? Yeah. I mean, listen, we have extremely price sensitive customers even in, in, in our country. Right. But the price-sensitive customer needs to be able to comprehend how to use a global product. And so if they're going to find it too cumbersome, they're not going to use it. You know, It's the same reason, for example, you have payment services work at convenience stores. Like, Why do people go to a convenience store to make a payment? Why can't they use an app or why can't they basically use a bank's website to, to make that payment? Why do they have to go to a convenience store when it's more expensive? It's because it's convenient. And it's the same, it's the same reason they use our app. 
They use our app because it's convenient, not because it's cheaper. So you have four values that you expect Bikea to abide by. One of it is, you know, there's empathy, there is simplify, there's own it and keep learning. Now, I'm quite interested why you picked empathy, actually, and how, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for Bikea? Yeah, I mean, it's super important, right? So why are we doing this? Why are we building, why are we building this app? Why are we, you know, what are we trying to do here? You know, we're trying to build technology for uh, the masses or the underprivileged, right? So if we don't have empathy for them to, to improve their lives through technology, we're in another game. And, you know, we're not in the trading game. We're not in the stock market, play your stocks game, you know. We're in the play to really build products for the masses. And if we don't have affinity or empathy for their pains, uh, we will not be able to address any of their problems. So, so, so empathy, first and foremost, for the driver base, Second, of course, for our customer base. Third, for our internal stakeholders, our employees. And last, but not least important, is our investors. Because, you know, our investors have deployed capital with us because they believe in our cause. But it's also our, uh, you know, it's our responsibility to, to help them realize uh, their gains. Yeah, I mean, it seems like, you know, you have all of these really interesting insights and foresight. So has there been at any point, you know, in your upbringing that has been formative and impacted sort of your larger consciousness or your personal growth and drive to become an entrepreneur, one that actually prioritizes this kind of empathy and sustainable growth for a company? Maybe you've had like a formative event or an influential person that's impacted you? Yeah, I mean, listen, um, I think um, I did not grow up in a poor household, right? So I grew up somewhat privileged. Uh, but I think right about the time that we, me and my brother, uh, and ultimately my sister, we went to college, you know, we went through very tough times, very tough economic, you know, times. And But I think what we realized, and I think what is pivotal for, um, you know, for the way I think at least now, is that wealth is important, of course, because it allows you to provide for your children and provide for a better life. It doesn't really matter whether I have a nice car or a really nice car. Like, you know, there's no, there's no value uh, that that gives me other than an ego boost in getting from point A to point B in a Corolla versus a Mercedes Benz, right? So, so there's no value in that. So, so what is valuable? And I think what we all leave behind is, you know, people in the past used to write, you know, their legacy was writing a book or their legacy was building a, building a monument or a, or a building, you know, or in America, People left a legacy by essentially setting up universities and colleges. And I think legacy is very important for me. And I think uh, you know, every one of us wants to, wants to know that as long as we're around, we're leaving behind something 
which adds value for people and gives them something back you know, in some form of the way. And first and foremost, the priority is to, to provide that opportunity for economic prosperity for those near you. And ultimately, if you are able to succeed in that, then uh, expand into the region. And I think many a times the decisions around expanding into the region, for example, are based upon valuation decisions. You know, they're not based upon really making something sustainable long term. But I think, frankly speaking, also having seen things like down rounds has sort of impacted my perception around valuations. Like for me, like I'd love for the valuation of Bikea to be big for my investors but that's not what's driving me, right? Because valuation is just, just basically a bubble. Like, what are you worth, right? Like, what is a company worth? You're only worth if someone's willing to be, give you, um, buy you out at some point. But, you know, um, I think all that is just, you know, feeding people's egos. What really matters long-term is, is the legacy that you leave behind, which ultimately in this day and age, will not be a book, will not be a monument, but will be products or entities or businesses that we set up that help uh, alleviate people from poverty uh, for a better life. And is there anything that, you know, how did you come to this realization that this is how you want to leave your legacy? Um, I think constantly, constantly questioning, you know, constantly questioning basically why you're around, right? Why are you around? Like, and, you know, and why are some people loved and others not loved, right? Like there are a lot of people who seemingly would be very successful if you try and check the boxes, right? But they're not looked up to or they're not happy themselves either, right? So I think if not every day, every week, just constantly thinking about, why are we here, right? You know, and, and leave religion out of it. This religion has nothing to do with this. It's ultimately, as a human being, you have a finite amount of time. And as Jeff Bezos says it, and I'm ironically quoting him, even though he's one of the richest people in the world, it's about regret minimalization, right? Um, I don't wanna have any regrets. Um, and um, I think a liberal art education also kind of helped. Right. So with liberal arts, you do study psychology and philosophy and and, you know, you read a lot. So um, so I think that helped frame things. So it's quite interesting in the sense that, you know, with regret minimalization, do you think there is the factor of, you know, privilege and having sort of a comfortable lifestyle, growing up with a comfortable lifestyle, what kind of role does that play in having this mindset of regret minimalization? Because if you look at it from the perspective of someone who, there's a lot at stake because say hey, he or she has a family to feed um, and they're thinking of how to make ends meet, it's sort of hand to mouth. Do you think that they would have adopted a similar attitude, would they still be able to say, I have this idea, I have this venture I want to build. Um, I don't want to have regrets. I'm going to do it even though, you know, I'm living um, hand to mouth. So 
listen, I think it is a lot easier for people who don't have to worry about feeding their families. There's no doubt about that, right? It's a lot easier for them because they've had the privilege of a upbringing or exposure or education really up to college, right? They've had that privilege. But to be candid with me, I only had that privilege probably up till, you know, eighth grade. Um, and after that, it was all frankly like like you know, almost no money from from the family. Like, you know, uh, me and my brother had to work multiple jobs to pay for our college uh, in the U.S., right, which is not cheap. So, so I think, you know, at some point, particularly at college, right after college, you have to take bets. You have to risk, uh, take risks, right? And the longer you defer taking those risks, the more likely you get into your comfort zone. So for example, right after college, even though I did a short stint in investment banking, right after that, like it was very easy for me to recognize that this is, yeah, this is kind of stupid. Like why are kids coming out of top colleges in the US and Europe being asked to data enter quarterly and annual financial statements to build the base for financial models for investment banks. Like you could easily get this data entered by English speaking people in the subcontinent. And that's exactly what I did for the next seven years. I got a contract from my employer, right? And I said, listen, every dollar that you save, I will get a piece of the pie, right? So, you know, I, I, I had no capital, right? I started with no capital. And so I think if you keep deluding yourself, that it's easier for the more affluent or the more privileged. Yeah, it's probably easier for them up till college, but after college, this you know everyone is on a level playing field, right? Because it's all about what value you're creating for the company that you're working for or the people who are investing with you. Like, what value are you creating for them? And you don't have to have money to get a contract from. The easiest person to get a contract from is your your current employer, right? But you you can't go to a manager because a manager is not empowered to make decisions. You can't even go to a VP. You need to go to the CEO or the chairman of the company to drive that decision because they're the entrepreneurs, you know, and they're the ones who are going to be willing to take the punts or the risks to give you a shot. So have I been fortunate? Have I been lucky? Absolutely, you know, but have I hustled for it? Absolutely. It hasn't come in a plate. So you're saying what I'm hearing is that, you know, part of it is having that sometimes that privilege does, does give you some sort of assistance, but ultimately it boils down to having that hustle also. Absolutely. Without a hustle, you're going to get nowhere in life. Like think about an inventor or you know, someone, a, a scientist who's trying to discover something. Like they failed so many times. And if it isn't the constant daily grind or the hustle of trying over and over and over again, that they're able to be fortunate to discover something uh, or invent something, right? And of course, after that, it's luck, right? It's after the discovery and invention, it's luck. It's luck in being patched with the right investors or um, you know, the, the right capitalists who can perhaps help you distribute that. 
uh, or market that. But initially, it's all about hustle. Yeah, I think the thing about luck also, I mean, sometimes people don't really take that into consideration, but it's like almost as if if you hustle also, some of the outcomes are just not in your control and that's where luck sort of comes in. And do you think people also kind of need to know when to quit? How do you know when to quit versus when to persevere? So I think I think you have to test it out. You have to basically get feedback from the market. I think within a quarter, maximum two quarters, if you've taken an initiative and it isn't panning out the results that you, you know, uh, assumed or hypothesized, then change course, you know, don't quit, but change course. Like there's no point in being despondent because even if there's marginal uptick, that means there's something to it, right? You just have to tweak it. Um, And, Frankly, I mean, you know, so I spend a lot of my time, you know, helping ideate on the product. And, you know, it's a constant trial and error. I I think you should quit to detour, but not quit to give up. Uh, You should quit to perhaps slightly pivot. But, you know, if you are completely quitting, it has to be a decision based upon one data and you really understanding why it's failed. Because I think if you don't document why you failed, you know, you will lose heart uh, for anything else that you want to do after that. Got it. So what is next for Baikia? And, you know, how are you reinventing Pakistan it's still the early days. It's still day one. Yeah, so I'm, uh, listen, I, I think I'm, I, I love what we do, right? I'm very passionate about building a platform, but let's not be facetious about it. Like, what does a platform really mean, right? What do we offer, right? We offer tracking and we offer communication and we offer sort of mini softwares for people to collaborate and transact with one another. And so we've got six buttons on our app and each of those buttons is a universe in itself. So one of course is transport. That in itself can be a unicorn. Um, The second is payments. You know, I think we've got a lot of work to do around payments, but not the kind of work that's been happening around some of these wallets that are being touted around the world as as the end-all solution for fintech. I'm not convinced on the whole wallet game. I think there's a lot of value in essentially being the Visa MasterCard for payments. You know, Visa MasterCard are the trillion-dollar businesses. No fintech, no bank is a trillion-dollar business. So I think Visa MasterCard type integrations is the way forward where you help financial institutions connect with consumers. On the convenience uh, side, I think the future is all about meshing maps with physical stores and virtual stores. I mean, one thing that Meetwan or Facebook do, or Google also does, is take ratings and reviews uh, in addition to where they're located. But you know, Facebook also has something very interesting. They also have WhatsApp. So that means you can also 
not only call, but you can also video chat. And ultimately, I think video streaming will also be integrated. So I think offline retail uh, and online retail will mesh and become richer in terms of visualization for end consumers. So I think there's a big opportunity. There's a Meetwan style opportunity there. Uh, if you're not familiar with Meetwan, it's one of the largest food delivery businesses in the world based out of China, also owned by, I think, majority controlled by the um, Tencent group. Um, I think there's a big opportunity in chat. I don't mean P2P chat. I mean B2B chat. Uh, there's a tremendous potential there. I think if you look at what Slack's been up to, if you look at what Ding Talk, owned by the Alibaba group, has been up to, is very interesting, you know. Uh, so I think there are uh, immense opportunities to enable two parties to communicate a lot more effectively. And those two parties do, need not be peers, right? And they can also also be employer and employee. Uh, and I think with that, things like uh, you know uh, tracking can also come into play. So I think there's a big opportunity there. There's a tremendous opportunity in first mile logistics. You know, we have only begun to scratch the surface there. There's a tremendous opportunity also in hyper-local commerce. Kind of the way, like, I love what Carousel has done in Southeast Asia. If you look at Carousel, uh, Carousel has also meshed in chat. Um, they use Sendbird, I think. But in chat uh, with transactions as well. So there's a big opportunity to do hyper-local transactions within the city, transactions for a marketplace. I think big opportunity there. You you could you could get me counting like I I I am excited about <laughs> every button, which in itself can be a universe. So I think the complexity is what do you focus on, right? The complexity is really around not being detracted by so many ideas. It's like ruthless prioritization of what's important. Yeah. I just wanted to quickly go over some rapid fire style questions. You know, we'll keep it light. Uh, what's a tool that you can't live without? It can be anything. It could be a notebook. It could be a pen, anything really. Yeah, I can't live without Google Docs. And uh, that's because I don't, I hardly use Excel now. I use Google Sheets. Google Sheets connects into cloud storage um, that Google offers through BigQuery. So our databases run through that. So Everything, uh, all reporting also flows in automatically. That flows in ultimately into chat for us as well. Uh, so cannot imagine life without Google Docs. I think Google Docs uh, in itself is a great opportunity because, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of flaws in Google Docs as well, which could be enhanced and worked upon, particularly integrations with chat. So yeah, I would say Google Docs. And then ultimately after Google Docs, a new product that, you know, we've just started using recently is DingTalk. Uh, by the Alibaba group is also fantastic. So DingTalk is like a hybrid between uh, Slack and WhatsApp, but for work. It allows you to, in addition to having video conferencing and voice notes and database integrations, which means getting reports into your chat uh, that can't be shared, and attendance, live streaming within your organization, just a ton of stuff. Like, very cool. I would absolutely recommend it, and it's free. What's a leadership practice or routine that you have with your team? 
So, you know, I'm, uh, I think I'm always just coming up with ideas, many of which are completely stupid, you know, and so what I like to do is I like to build consensus, even if I don't have to agree to the consensus, <laughs> right? So what I will do is basically I will document it within a Google Doc or a Google Sheet and then allow everyone to comment on it. And they can comment on it by writing or they can comment on it by leaving a voice note you know, through an extension. So I like to have people poke questions into the idea and what that allows at least me to do is to build consensus around whether to proceed with the idea or not. And I think this has been successful thus far for us at Bikea in deciding what to do uh, going forward because it can't be it can't be a singular decision all in my mind. Uh, it has to be a decision with contributions coming in from the very powerful set of folks that we have in our leadership team. Okay, cool. And I mean, how do you filter out the relevant comments versus, you know, just an opinion, for instance? Well, you know, if it's a statement, I will also ask if it can be corroborated by historical data or by sample sizing and doing some primary level research. And many times I will not even attend to or respond to frivolous uh, inputs because, you know, I mean, some some leaders will just come in and and just give frivolous comments which have no depth because you can see that they haven't thought deeply about it. And it's best to not, you know, ridicule anyone publicly. It's best to ignore it. Okay, what's uh, one of the biggest learning lessons you've encountered? Or I guess it could also be something you would give as advice. Yeah, so many a times people think that they should not or they could not, in principle, compete against global, very deep-pocketed products. I think they have to rethink that. And the reason I say that is that many times people are too shy. And a good analogy I'll give is they're too shy to walk up to the pretty girl in the bar, right? And the reason I say that is that the opportunity is big. And the reality is that the user or the consumer is someone just like you, right? So if you find a flaw in a global product, that's an opportunity. And many a times people will think and assume that if they're not software developers and they're not engineers, they can't build a product. I think that's completely wrong, right? Like all you need is a laptop or a phone that can do a screenshot and you can copy that screenshot into paint, for example, and just sketch up or move things around uh, to create a very, very basic journey of how you would expect that product to really uh, work. And I would say um, the biggest opportunities are in the flaws of very successful global products. 
Hmm, I mean, that's one thing, but it's also, you know, it starts off as an idea, but associated with, you know, turning that into a reality is that risk and, you know, what about the people that are kind of risk averse to even try? There's that fear of failing. Why is there a fear of failing? Like, why would you, like, you're going to fail every day when you go to work and you hate what you do, you're failing yourself. You know, if you can't be honest to yourself, you'll never gonna, you're never gonna be happy. And you know, this, I'd also like to sort of like bite my tongue there. Like, it's not about happiness, right? Like, I'm not happy every day when I wake up. I'm stressed. I'm stressed because at night I've been dreaming about a problem that I have to solve for, right? And what motivates me in the morning is to go out and try and to solve that, right? And it may not make me the happiest person in the world, but, you know, inventors and scientists are also not necessarily the, you know, the most pleasant people in the world, but they're the most obsessed people in the world. And it comes back to basically them at least feeling whether they are contributing in the betterment of society and leaving a legacy. It doesn't matter whether my peer or my spouse or my girlfriend or my mom or my dad don't think much of what I'm doing. What do I care, right? What do I care what they think? All that matters is what I think, right? Because ultimately I need to answer to myself. And so if you're fearful of failing, then you will get to a stage in your life where you will regret and you will get into a depression and you will have anxiety because you will feel that you have not come up to your own expectations. So it boils back also to that regret minimalization. Absolutely. All right, last question. What are you currently binging? It could be anything you're reading, watching, listening to, eating, really anything. What are you obsessing about? I'm obsessing, frankly, just about my product. I dream about it every, every day. But listen, I've bored you to death with all of that. So what do I look forward to in a day? Uh, to go on a tangent, I look forward to two things in a day. Uh, either a run or, frankly, just going to the bathroom for a shower and listening to a podcast. And even during a run, I listen to a podcast because it allows me to utilize that one hour for both mental and for physical exercise. And the second thing I look forward to every day is a scoop or two of homemade style ice cream. And I really like fig uh, with sprinkles of caramel on it. Nice. Any podcasts you've been listening to? Any ones that you recommend? Um, two that I like uh, are, you know, one is... Uh, one is basically uh, impact theory. It's mostly on YouTube. I like that. I listen to that quite a bit. Uh, I do listen to uh, The Art of Manliness. It's a podcast on Google <laughs> Podcasts. I think that's great. I really like Tech Buzz China. It's from Panda Daily. And I also really like NPR, How I Built This. Yeah, that's that's a few that come to mind. All right, cool. Um, just to quickly summarize and recap what we talked about, 
you know, um, Munib is the founder of Baikia that covers transportation, logistics, payments, and has operations in four cities across Pakistan. And, you know, he's focused on empathy, regret minimalization, taking that risk and avoiding any fear of failure. There's a lot of challenges in being an entrepreneur, but I think it boils down to having that resilience and that grit and persevering through all of the challenges. Did I miss anything? No, I think you covered it. All right. Thank you for this opportunity, Meher. Appreciate it. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.